Psalm 1 is our psalm, and I'm just going to pray briefly before we look at God's word. <coughs> Father God, I come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, now, and ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us as your word is preached. I pray that you would grant me love and boldness and clarity as I preach your word, and that we would all come together with a hearty amen to the truth of this scripture before us, and that we would find our true joy in Jesus Christ and him alone, for I prayed in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, it seems to me, and I'm sure to you, that the great interest of man is the happiness of man. You know, ever since paradise was lost in Eden and Eve took that forbidden fruit, uh, because she thought it would bring her greater happiness, the world has been looking for happiness, because the world is unhappy. Every advertising ploy promises happiness, from food to sporting fame, from selling clothes to selling sex, from weight loss to weight lifting. The promise is, this will make you happy. Everyone's looking for happiness. Of course, there is nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says. People want to be happy in a fallen world. And King Solomon, who had more stuff and comfort than any of us ever will, he says in the second verse of Ecclesiastes 1, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In other words, to find lasting happiness is hopeless, and that's the discovery of the world. And some of the unhappiest people are the ones you think have the best circumstances. You know, the, the movie stars, the, the pop stars, the, the professional athletes. And they had these massive, massive highs, and then they come down from them and they have massive holes. And they're so unhappy. You know, according to Time magazine's 2018 May edition, the number of kids hospitalized for thinking about or attempting suicide has doubled in less than a decade. That's according to a, a study published in Pediatrics Journal, which Time magazine uh, put in their uh, edition. That's incredible. Girls self-harm on the rise at exponential rates. Uh, young male suicide on the rise at exponential rates. People are unhappy with their sexuality, unhappy with their finances, unhappy with their jobs, unhappy with their relationships. And many of those who say they are happy aren't actually really happy because the things they place their happiness in can all be taken away. They have no happiness beyond the things in this life. Yet Ecclesiastes says God put eternity into a man's heart and yet the world is looking for eternal value in temporal things. And it's left frustrated, hopeless, unhappy. So as this life begins to wane, if all you have is this life, you have no solid joy. You say with the world, let's eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Psalm 1 begins with this phrase. You see it in your text there in front of you, in your Bible. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessed or happy is the man. So there is hope, friends. It is possible to be happy in this world, but only if you follow God's prescription for happiness. 
That is to realise that true happiness is not found in our circumstances, but in our relationship to God and who we are in Him. That's the conclusion of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, right at the end. He says, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Then we can begin to experience true happiness in all of our relationships and harmony in our lives. So, here we enter the Psalms. This is the entrance way to the book of Psalms. It's a wisdom psalm. That's why I was making links to wisdom, other wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes. It's a wisdom psalm, and we see in here the marks of the happy or the blessed man. And I'm going to give you four marks. Number one, his separation. Number two, his devotion. Number three, his irrigation and fruition. And number four, his destination. His separation, devotion, his irrigation and fruition, and his destination. Some shun words for you, easy to remember. The first thing to see is his separation. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We see what he has separated from, what he is not. God's prescription for true happiness and his description of the happy man begins with a negative, a not. The blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. True happiness, true blessedness is found not in the things of the world. You need to look elsewhere, not there. The blessed man does not walk, stand, or sit. Why the not? Why the not? You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that popular education and pop psychology says that people don't need to hear negatives. You know, you've got to affirm everyone all the time. You've got to build their self-esteem up. But it isn't the way of the Bible. The psalmist says the way to be happy is to begin with a not. And of course, most of the Ten Commandments say, do not. No isn't the only thing in the Bible, of course, but God says something like this. If you want to come into my presence, there are some things you cannot bring with you. Some things you cannot do. Because, he says, failure to heed one do not in the Garden of Eden, eat from every tree, but do not touch that one. Failure to heed one do not in the Garden of Eden led to separation from me and every malady in the world today. Why the not? Because the Bible is realistic. It does not believe in the goodness of man. Everybody is sinful. When we get rid of all the sinners in the world, we can get rid of all the negatives in the Bible. Everybody is going in the wrong direction to start with and there is no hope of happiness for anyone unless they realise they're wrong about everything. So the Bible doesn't affirm you, it diagnoses you. And God says in his word, if you want to be truly happy according to my prescription, then realise you're going wrong and stop. What is it God says to Noah in the book of Genesis? Genesis 8.21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's the diagnosis of God on man. It's not mine. The Apostle Paul says, there is no distinction 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Why the not? People judge the ingredients for happiness, you see, by what they see in the world around them, not what they read in God's word. That's why God says no, not like the world, like this. And there needs to be a consistent no to certain things in your life if you want happiness. We need biblical boundaries, if you like, just as children. All children need boundaries lest they go astray and hurt themselves or become a nuisance to others. And parents here will know that very well. You've had to put boundaries in your children's lives to protect themselves and, and others. And true worship can't be experienced if I'm bringing baggage in that's not consistent with God's way of worship, God's boundaries. So God's no's give true freedom and joy in the end because like children who know their boundaries, God's children feel safe then and free then to do what their father permits. Now let's look at exactly what the truly happy or blessed man does not do. What he separates from. The happy man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, he doesn't listen to the rhetoric of the world. It's subtly deceptive, you know, how much the church is influenced by the advice of the world. And you know, you're out there tomorrow, you might be out there in it, in the workplace or whatever you're doing, mixing with your neighbours, and you're in it. Or you're watching television or reading the newspapers. But it's not just the rhetoric, it's the aims and the principles behind it, behind the wicked world, those who are not Christian. See, the world trusts its own intelligence and power, not God's power and wisdom. Worldly knowledge is derivative and contingent. It's not original. God is the only original one. But friends, such is the the pull of the wicked and the deceitful schemes of Satan and the remaining sin in our own hearts that we're in danger often of being beginning to walk in the counsel of the wicked if we're not vigilant. You know, you listen enough to it and you begin to get desensitised to its wickedness and you begin to walk with the idea. Walking in the counsel of the wicked, you see, begins in the imagination. But the happy man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Also, the happy man, see it here in the text, does not stand in the way of sinners. Their sinful way of living, their sinful lifestyle. So, what you couldn't stand the thought of, now you stand the thought of, and now you begin to travel on its way. And it's a broad way. And it's an easy road. And you've got lots of fellow travellers around you on that road. And yet it's a way that always, always leads to destruction. But the happy man is not so. He's a friend to sinners, but he's not intimate with sinners such that their way is his way. He's not standing in the way of sinners. Also, the happy man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. True happiness is found not sitting in the seat of scoffers. The scoffers, these are God mockers. These are the ones who are so indifferent to God that they hate divine things. They are mockers of creation, mockers of marriage, mockers of morality and what is decent and honourable in the eyes of God. 
They call good evil and evil good. And are we not in a society that mocks God right now? They are clever and powerful and popular. And they make fun of Christians and Christianity. And then they attack Christians by saying Christians are immoral. And people haters and lawbreakers. And you know if you stand on God's word nowadays in the ethical uh, imperatives of God's word. You're the one that gets called immoral. And a people hater. And eventually as, as will come a lawbreaker. Because it'll change the law. So Christians lose reputations and jobs. Freedom of speech. Because of the scoffers. But that's not the happy man. He's not sitting in the seat of scoffers. He will not sit in that seat. Now, if you're looking carefully at the word of God here, you see the development of sin and spiritual failure. Look at, it's walking, then standing, and then sitting. You walk. At first you listen to and toy with sinful ideas. It's maybe at this point it's not visible to others. But soon you stand. You're standing in the habit of sin. It's now become a lifestyle. Now it's visible to other people. Finally, you sit. You're stuck. You're rooted. You're addicted. It's very difficult to shift. And you even begin to teach others your ways. As Romans 1 says, you're approving of those who practice them. Look also how sin is like creeping paralysis. Walking, standing, sitting. From motion to motionless. Crippled by the effects. See, sin never, ever ends well. It never ends in pleasure, though it might promise immediate pleasure for a moment. But from that moment, the poison begins to creep through the soul until it paralyzes. So the question is this. Who or what influences you? I've already said, most of you are mixing in the world in some respect during the week. Oh, we're not called to withdraw from the world like monks sit up on a mountain somewhere and just pray all day. We're called to be in the world. We're called to be in that society out there, but not of it. Jesus says to be salt and light. To not be influenced by it, but to influence it instead as we're distinct from the world. When he touched Jesus, the leper did not infect Jesus. The leper was cleansed by Jesus. That's a picture for us. So avoid intimacy with worldly influences. Remember the proverb. Whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You will be harmed, not happy. If you're intimate with worldly influences. This psalm is very clear. There is a difference between saints and sinners. Between holiness and wickedness. Between the righteous and the ungodly. There's a clear line. You are in one camp or the other. There is an in and an out. Don't forget that. Because eternity will bear witness to it. That's why as we enter the book of Psalms... God puts this no at the entrance as if he's saying the happy man who will praise me in this book of Psalms, this book of praises and if he will enter my courtyards he will separate himself from the influence of the world 
Otherwise, he can't come in. Life under the sun is vanity. If you look for a lasting happiness on a horizontal level, only, unconnected to God and his gifts, you will be unhappy and unfulfilled because everything here is passing away. What does the Apostle John say? Do not love the world or the things in the world. And a few verses later, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, we need solid joys. Solid joys. Joys that will last and are as big as God, the God who gives them. And it's only when we recognise or discover by painful experience even sometimes the temporary nature and the emptiness of things in this world that we begin to look for our joy and our happiness in another world. Only then can we be truly happy in this world. We can enjoy the things in this world because we see them as temporal gifts from God and yet not God. The result is then thanksgiving to God, remembering they're not God. And that's what the blessed or happy man does. He doesn't seek his satisfaction in the world. We see the ingredients of true happiness lie in his separation. That's the first mark of happiness. Then there's a second mark. It's his devotion. So number one, his separation. Number two, his devotion. We've had the negative, now the positive. You see it there in verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the next mark of the truly happy man is what he devotes himself to. Only to say no might moderate a person's behaviour to some degree, but it will only do that. It won't give you happiness in God. But the blessed man separates from ungodly instruction and devotes himself to God's instruction, to the Torah, but to all of Scripture. And notice, he delights in the law of the Lord. He loves it. Here is his happiness. You know, when God's revelation, when it, when it breaks through into your life, you might remember this. Some of you saints have been walking a, a long, long time with the Lord. Maybe you can't even remember a time when you weren't Christians. Or maybe you can and God's revelation breaks through into your life. It begins to taste like pleasure. And you begin to delight in it. I remember when I got saved. I was at Barnhurst. Um, Barnhurst Methodist Church. I was 18. And you know what? I couldn't wait to get back to my room and read God's word. I was delighting in God's word. Daily bread. Notes, you know. God surely must affect your emotions. Surely. It's not enough to know the word of God. You must love the God of the word. What a powerful, righteous, holy God he is. What a sinner I am. And how I deserve hell. How merciful he is that his own son would die for my sins. That I might be forgiven and saved. And to delight in the word of God also means to recognise the authority of it. And to submit to it. See the devil knows the word of God better than all of us. But he doesn't submit to its authority because he doesn't love it. So just take a moment now to reflect here. You know, you might be growing in your Bible knowledge, but are you growing in your Bible obedience? Question, how has last week's sermon 
changed you in a practical way this week? So Charles has been preaching up here last week, or this morning, but maybe that's not enough time, but last week, preached God's word. How has that sermon, God's word to you, changed you in any way practically this week? I'm testing you out now because you're thinking, I can't even remember last week's sermon. Well, if you can't, it's probably on the website and you can hear it again. But it's true, isn't it? So often, before we've even walked out that door, the devil's plucked that word from, away from our minds. And, and, and we've got on to the next thing, the, 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 the blog on the internet, the program that's on TV, the next problem we've got to face. And we've actually not let that word sink in and actually affect us, that it then affects our hearts and our wills. Some people just like to talk Bible and look clever without actually being changed by the Bible. Or some people say, oh, the Christian life is all of grace. I don't need to obey God's law. I'm just forgiven. Well, no, you don't need to obey God's law for your justification. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, the Bible says in Romans 10. I fulfill the law for you, Jesus says. But he does say in Matthew 5, I don't come to abolish it. And so we, so we look to Christ, not to the law for our salvation. But in Christ, now we're driven back to the moral law to train us in godliness as we seek to obey by faith now. Antinomianism, anti-law, antinomianism is anti-Psalm 1. And it's anti-Bible. And it is problematic in the church today. And it results in lack of discipline and ungodliness. It's just something to be aware of, even as we urge one another on to become students of the word. I mean, think of it like this. If Jesus saved you, and you love his word, why wouldn't you want to obey the Ten Commandments? Why wouldn't you want to obey them? Jesus did. His delight was in obeying the law of the Lord. And you have the mind of Christ now. Also, notice that the happy man's devotion manifests itself in habitual meditation. It says there, on his law, he meditates day and night. And if your biblical antenna are up, and they might not be up at this time of night, it's tired at this point, but if they are up, you might be already thinking of God's instruction to Moses' successor Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 8, when he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. See, the same phrase. So that you may be careful to do all according to all that was written in it. He says, meditate on my word. Now, this word for meditate means chew over or mutter. To chew over or to to mutter. Okay, so muttering the scriptures would have been a common practice in old Israel. So, you know, they'd walk around reading the scriptures and, and they would be muttering the scriptures as they, as they walked around, meditating on them, muttering them under their breath, out, out loud under their breath. It was common practice to mutter the scriptures. I recommend muttering the scriptures. Be very careful where you do it. Else you might look like a lunatic. But, muttering the scriptures. I mean, how often do we sit down to do our devotions 
and our eyes start going straight away because we start feeling sleepy. If you get up and you stand and just for five minutes you read Psalm 1, Psalm 2 and mutter the scriptures, it is good practice and it helps us with meditation. It is in fact meditation. True meditation. Because what happens is, as you do the muttering, you set the scriptures in your mind, the verse, the order, the meaning, the application. And so what happens then is you hide the word in your heart. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119, verse 11? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Young men in here, there's one or two. I might even put Chola in the category of young man compared to me now. There's one up the back there. But the young men, answer this question. How will a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119 verse 9. By guarding it according to your, that is God's word. So you don't meditate on your iPhone or your PlayStation. You meditate on God's word. Let God's word sink into your mind. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Mutter God's word. Don't grumble against God's word. And you make it your regular habit. Or some young guys say, well that's not cool. No, what's not cool is a generation of directionless, lightweight, insecure young men who don't fear the Lord. That's not cool. And it's the same for young women. It's the same for all of us. What do you meditate on most? What is on your lips most? What are you muttering about? That will tell you a lot about your state of happiness in the Lord. What to do if you're you're not doing this? Well, get started. Get started today and be regular. Speak to Pastor Chola and and see if you can get some advice from him of how you can start your regular muttering of the word. Get muttering. That's a takeaway from tonight. Get muttering God's word. Uh, Get together, maybe with an older man or woman, depending on whether you're a man or a woman, to kickstart your meditation on the law of the Lord. See, when the word of God then breaks into your life, and you may be doing that for the first time now or in a deeper way now, when that happens, for the first time, you become a Christian. And then God takes the story of your life, and he puts it into the big story of what he is doing in history. Now, suddenly, you've got a purpose. Suddenly, you've got a history. You're part of all of this. Suddenly, you've got an identity, and you've got security. All these things now can't ever be taken away from you. And they're all the things that out there, people are searching for to make them happy. History, identity, security, purpose. Take everything away in this life from the Christian, and the Christian still has security. Why? Because he has God. And so he delights in the law of the Lord, which makes him wise for salvation. And he boasts in the pleasure of the gospel. Here's the thing. Let the world see your pleasure. The chief end of man is to glorify God and what? You know it. And enjoy him. Enjoy him. Enjoy him. Forever. We want to be joyful Christians. We should be the most joyful people in the world. Look at this blessed man. He delights in God's word. You're meant to enjoy God. What does the psalmist say at the end of Psalm 16? In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures evermore, forevermore. So at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. But what is at the right hand of God? Or shall I say who? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? He is our lasting pleasure. Stephen is our first eyewitness. Do you remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts 7, when he's about to be stoned to death, he looks up and he sees a window into heaven and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Paul confirms, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him where? At the right hand of God. And so he directs us in Colossians 3 and he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek things that are above, where Christ is, where? Seated at the right hand of God. And then the psalmist says, in Psalm 110 verse 1, as he guarantees Jesus' final rule and victory, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all enemies under your feet. At the right hand of God are pleasures evermore. And it's Jesus who's at the right hand of God. Because in Jesus is invested all the quality of happiness because of who he is. If you just want to be happy, you know, people say, I just want to be happy. Here's the answer. Reach out to Jesus Christ in faith. If you want to be happy, reach out to Jesus Christ in faith. Because It contains all the pleasures of God, and pleasures from God last. It's as if God packs up all of his pleasures for you in his son, like wraps them up and gifts them to you in Jesus. Like this present, this gift. And because it's God who packs the pleasures, you know that the pleasures will last. They are pleasures forevermore. And so as our bodies, we were speaking with Michael coming in there, and he says, getting older, bodies creaking. As our bodies begin to fade, our pleasures never fade. They're forevermore. And here's the thing. They're also portable pleasures. They are with you in Christ always, at all times, in all circumstances, in health, in wealth. As I'm living, as I'm dying, whether I'm in Bexley Heath or Calgary, Canada, they're portable pleasures because I'm in Christ always at all times. And so the happy man is known, number one, for his separation from the influence of the world and sinners. Number two, his devotion to the word of God, his separation and his devotion. So we've been told what not to do, and then he contrasts it with what to do, And then, like any good teacher, the psalmist gives us an illustration in which we see the third mark of happiness, his irrigation and his fruition. There it is in the text. Pastors and preachers love these kind of texts because one of the things we have to work really hard at is finding good illustrations. Okay, But in a text like this, you've got the illustration there for you. And that's good teaching, you know. Don't do this. Don't. I remember when my dad took, taught me football. You know, he would say, he'd line me up with the ball. He'd say, no, don't kick it like this, but kick it like this. So the no and the yes. And then he would say, and it's like this. And then he would show me a picture as he would demonstrate. So here's the picture. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He is like a tree. So first... Notice this, 
He is planted. He is like a tree planted. It is done to him. So you are not born a Christian. God chooses to make you a Christian. You're not a Christian by the family you're born into or by going to church or doing good things. God saves you by transplanting you. So the blessed man is, is planted. The happy man is planted. It is done to him. A tree does not plant itself. Someone else plants it. Which means also the tree is owned by someone else. Chosen and taken from one place and then secured in another and sustained by someone else too. Like the Christian. Once you were unbelieving and heading in a hellbound direction and you've been picked up and transplanted here in the kingdom of his beloved son. Heading for heaven with a heavenly father who owns you and cares for you bought by the blood of Christ. And when God picks you up and plants you, what happens? Suddenly you realise, wow, he created this world and he created me and he has his eye on me and, and I know the world is going somewhere now and I'm going somewhere now and I belong. I have purpose. I, I have security in his love and care for me. And you are planted then and rooted in his unchangeable love. A child of the Father. Where is your security and your identity here this evening? You can never feel secure if you don't have God. Because everything you are placing your security and identity in will last for a while. Well, it will be gone after a while. How can, you have, how can anyone have happiness in a world like that? They're fooling themselves. Everything in their life is threatened. But not the happy man. He's planted. He's planted. And he's planted by streams of water, he says there. The idea here is um, of artificial canals. They would have artificial canals of water that irrigated the trees alongside the canals there in, in the uh, ancient east. And the point the psalmist is making is that we need supernatural, not natural, irrigation. Irrigation by the Holy Spirit through his word. And you know, don't you, the mind, the spiritually minded person, the one that has that internal spring of spiritual life in them. You talk to them and they just bubble over with God's word and they just seem to just have that joy and happiness and there's that something about them. Their patterns of thoughts of God are regular. They're repentant when they sin. And there's this inward principle of spiritual irrigation, which also then means fruition. So irrigation and fruition. The happy man is irrigated well, so he's fruitful. And what is fruit like? Fruit is beautiful and fruit's visible. <clears throat> There is visible fruit of Christ-likeness in a Christian's life. Others will see it. And this fruit tastes sweet to others. Do you taste sweet to others? Because your fruit serves the good of others. Christ-like love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faith, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, these fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He yields his fruit in season. His fruit is yielded in season as well. 
Valley Society is mature. It's timely. The mature Christian has a sense of appropriateness. Okay? So they're not loud or rude. They have things like manners. Christian manners. Which proceed from the fruit of humility. That then considers another person more significant than themselves. I think sometimes we make... Too many excuses for people, maybe for ourselves, and we say, oh, well, they're just socially awkward. Well, actually, they might just lack manners because they're too self-absorbed to consider what might be appropriate behaviour to a given situation. I think we need to rediscover that word, maybe appropriateness. But the Christian should be growing in the fruit of Christian manners so that he or she might be able to mix appropriately In different company. Just like Jesus. Jesus walked with kings or with commoners with ease for the sake of the gospel. The fruit of the happy man is also seasonal because he continues to produce fruit in different seasons of life. So consider your season of life. Different seasons of life amongst us here. Consider your season of life and how you can still be fruitful accordingly. You know, sometimes as, as we get older, we can th- seem to think, well, I'm not really useful to the kingdom anymore. Well, not according to God's word. You're always producing fruit in season. So consider, how can I be fruitful uh, according to my season? Uh, there are freedoms and responsibilities that you have as a Christian that differ slightly in different seasons to when you were young to when you were old. Or older, when you're single to when you're married and so on. So consider your season and how you can be fruitful. And then there's that little phrase, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. In other words, he perseveres. He perseveres. The, the, the leaf that doesn't wither and all he does is he's prospering. It isn't prosperity gospel. This is persevering. The life in him is eternal life, you see. And it cannot die, so he's evergreen. Evergreen. Christian's evergreen. Jeremiah uses that image, you know, in Jeremiah 17, verse 8. He says this, He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Remarkable how God's word fits together. You'd think it had the same author. In other words, through trials and suffering, the Christian, the blessed man, the happy man, still grows. So here's the picture of the happy man. Rooted, secure, solid, fruitful, mature, persevering. In contrast, look at the wicked man. It says in there, in the text, in verse 4, The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. 30 words to describe the blessed or happy man. 14 words to describe the wicked man. He has no substance, no security, no solidity, no fruit, no maturity, no longevity. For all his boasting and all his power, for all his cleverness and all his influence and fame in this life, he is blown away like chaff. It's as if the psalmist just pops the bubble of the world's pride and says, oh him, not so, blown away. 30 words of substance, 14 words, no substance. 
And that's why he says in the next verse, he will not stand in the judgment. He cannot stand in the judgment. He has no substance. He will not be able to carry his cause before God. He will not stand, it says, in the congregation of the righteous. On judgment day, the unbeliever will not stand with Christians because he will not stand with them in this life, in this congregation, right now. And you see it with many people, don't you? They cannot stand the word of God. And they sit and they wriggle and they want to get out from under the word of God and away from the church of God. They cannot stand it. And so they will not stand in the day of judgment. And the last verse of this psalm says, the way of the wicked will perish. Not might perish, but will perish. Hell is as definite as heaven. The separation at the beginning of this psalm, what the blessed man separates from, the separation at the beginning now points to this final separation to come. And there will be no second chances. They can't enter the happiness of God in the worship of God in heaven. They have no substance. They have no solid joy. Now in his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis uh, paints this picture of heaven and he describes heaven with all the grass and rocks and trees and water in only the way that C.S. Lewis can write. And he speaks of things like this. He says, it is much solider than things in our country. And then he speaks of these uh, phantom figures that come to visit heaven, as if they could, but to visit and see and they, they're, they're confronted by this. The grass is sharp and hard. To fit into heaven, they must become not less solid, but more solid. They must move from being phantom to having weight and substance. They cannot live there, and neither will they want to. They will cut their feet on the grass of heaven. The unbeliever doesn't have the fruit of Christian substance and doesn't have the substance of Christ to stand on. In Psalm 1, you see, at the end here, there is now a reversal. The happy and righteous man is described by lots of words in that picture there of the tree, and the wicked man is described by just a few words. But now it's reversed in the description of the destination. This is the fourth mark of Happiness and the happy man. Number one is separation. Number two is devotion. Number three is irrigation and fruition. And number four, his destination, described by just a few words, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Simple. The Lord knows the righteous. And you know what? That should be enough to make you happy. The Lord knows you. Not primarily that you know him, though that's necessary, but that he knows you. He cares for you. Your name is on his heart. You know, if I go to Buckingham Palace and, and I'm knocking at the gate there and, 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 the, and the queen's riding by in the background and I say to the guard, hey, I know the queen, I'm not getting into the palace. But, if as she's riding by on her horse, she looks over there and says, Oh, hey, Gavin, I know Gavin. 
I'm getting into the palace. That he knows you is enough. And to those who have rejected God or faked Christianity in this life, he will say, Matthew 7, I never knew you. Chilling words. I never knew you. Prideful, powerful mockers will not stand. They will melt away under God's judgment. But to you, and here is the, here is the great encouragement, but to you, the weakest believer in here, you might feel weak tonight in your faith. You might feel, I'm just hanging on by a thread. To the weakest believer in here, those who are like the blessed man, he will say, I know you, my child. You trusted me to the end. Now enter into the joy of your master. God knows the righteous. But who are the righteous? They are those who trust in the Lord for forgiveness of sin and his constant care. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Think of this. Jesus was a good Jew. Jesus would have known this psalm, you know. From boyhood, he would have read this psalm, memorized this psalm, meditated on this psalm, sung this psalm with his family, prayed this psalm maybe around the, the kitchen table on an evening with Joseph and Mary. But here's the irony, friends. Jesus was the only truly blessed man. The only truly happy man. Supremely happy before his incarnation in the Trinity. Beloved of the Father from eternity. And he was the only truly righteous man who ever lived. And as he sang as a boy, and as he prayed this psalm, and as he grew in wisdom... From a boy to a man, he would have seen himself as the fulfillment of this psalm. So that Peter would eventually write in 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Bring us to God to eventually see the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in heaven. That's where we're going, folks. And as Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, described it, that is happifying. Let's pray. And so, Father, thank you for your glorious and good word that always points us to a glorious and good and righteous Saviour in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we not go away from this place unchanged. May we be driven to uh, repentance and faith and great delight in the law of the Lord. May we avoid uh, ungodly influences. May we fight uh, sinful tendencies in our hearts. And may we have our minds set on heaven from where our risen Savior will come one day and take us home to himself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.